This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio. We've got a great show for you today. I'm back from the IAQA conference, the annual meeting in, uh, let's see, they were in Chicago the week before that, I was in Orlando at the Sloan Research to Practice Workshop. So two uh, excellent events I want to report back on. Our key sponsors are John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio trivia question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnik at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man with this week's IAQ Radio trivia question. Hello everyone, welcome to IAQ Radio trivia question. I'm sorry to report that no one correctly identified the EPA as the agency that created the NCEL, or Nickel Exposure Limit. The IQ Radio trivia question for today, Friday, January 26, 2018, has been sponsored by Ideas, the solution chemistry company creating unique solutions to odor removal, surface cleaning, and decontamination problems. Here is today's IQ Radio trivia question. What was the date of the first IAQ Radio broadcast? Back to you, Joe. (laughs) Good one, Cliff. All right. So anyway, I'm I'm back. It's uh, been an interesting couple of weeks, and today we're going to talk a little bit about the IAQA annual meeting first. I want to start out with that. Um, That was just this week, my goodness, the weeks are kind of uh, blended together here, but uh, just got back from that. Another annual meeting, another excellent time, another good group of people. A little chilly in Chicago, but uh, you can see we were in Chicago this year. They had a pretty nice turnout for the event. They put together a little you know, membership meeting, and as a part of the meeting, they announced the new inductees into the IAQA Hall of Fame. And this year, I think if we've got the slides up here, We've got, uh, of course, the board had their meeting, and we had a nice group. Let's go to the next slide there, John. There we go. Andy Osk. God, I love it. Andy Osk, past president of IAQ Radio. And um, Andy was a uh, ASHRAE fellow. He's been around forever. It was great to have Andy join the uh, IAQA Radio Hall of Fame. And uh, next was Lou Harriman. Lou joined the Hall of Fame this year. Lou, I think many listeners know Lou. We've had him on the show quite a few times. He was also at the Sloan Conference. He's a very involved ASHRAE member as well. And the two that could not make the event but were both inducted this year were Joe Stebrook. I think most people know Joe from Building Science Corporation up in Massachusetts. And Jeff May. Both have been guests on the show, Jeff, a couple times. Uh, Jeff, my house is killing me, May. Uh, both very, very, uh, very well-deserving uh, gentlemen, 
inducted into the Hall of Fame this year. So that was one. I, that's always a um, a big part of the event. They also had a nice question and answer period for uh, IAQA members to you know ask any questions of the board and talk to the board and the leadership. Uh, Stephanie Sears and some of the staff were there as well, and uh, they went over some of the changes that have. You know, it's been a little rough at times uh, going over to the you know, ASHRAE running of IAQA. But uh, in general, things were real smooth this year. We had a, a nice group of presentations and, uh, all, as always, a great group of people. Cliff, I was wondering if you had any uh, any questions about how things went at the IAQA conference. Yeah, I do, Joe. One, one question. You know, to me, uh, having a, attended events for as long as I have, oftentimes, you know, the main learning wasn't really done in the classroom. The main learning is done at the dinner after, you know, small dinners of people and, and you know, the groups that, that you meet there and, and what's going on in the bar and, and that working, that, that sort of thing. So what sort of networking opportunities were there? You read my mind, Cliff. We just went to the next slide. And I want to shout out to uh, Nelson Constanza uh, from Delaware, the uh, guys that do a whole bunch of big jobs out there, big-time remediation contractor, um, and Addison Christian, my good friend from St. Croix, networked with them. We made it over to Buddy Guy's place, which is just on the street from the Hilton, where the event took place. Um, and, you know, in general, it's a little tougher, the networking, because, you know, you're at the Hilton, um, the AHR expo which is the huge you know uh, show with 2,000 exhibitors you've got to take a bus over to the AHR but they did a nice job of making sure we had you know a special IAQ pavilion or IAQA pavilion at the AHR and I thought it was nice too that they left time at the end of each day where they didn't have presentations they said this is the time to go over to the uh, pavilion and then on the, I guess it would be Friday, the day we went over, they had a, a guy over there with a couple barrels of beer, and they had, uh, you know, there were 8 or 10, 15 uh, exhibitors right in the little IAQA pavilion. And uh, it was a real nice event in that respect. But it is a little tougher, Cliff, because um, you've got Ashray at the Palmer House, you've got IAQA at the Hilton, um, then you've got... Uh, the AHR Expo in the McCormick Place, which is a huge place. Uh, the other thing they did really nice was they did have a um, meeting. Um, at the end of the first day, they had everyone go to a uh, reception. Uh, and uh, John and Lydia Lapater, as always, were there to greet. Uh, John's the current president. Uh, we had a, we, we were let know that uh, next Incoming president is going to be Bruce White, who we just had on the show last week. Uh, that's going to be uh, changeover. It will occur in June or July. But at that, you know, meeting they had or the uh, reception they had at the end of the day, they also had some of the IAQA pavilion vendors there, the exhibitors, and so we got to see Tom Grillo and the, you know, Adam from the Particles Plus gang. The Gray Wolf guys were there. Uh, Rick Stonier, we, we talked to him for a little bit. And uh, there's another interesting um, new exhibitor. I, I, they may have been there last year. I don't know, do we have the Brizometer one? You can jump to that. This Brizometer was fascinating. If you, if you get a chance, there's an app. And uh, I've got it up on the screen now. It's called Brizometer. And um, I was walking around the exhibit hall with, uh, actually with Bill Hayward, 
of Hayward Score and Hayward Healthy Homes, uh, another group that I spent a lot of time with out there. And if you get a chance, get your Hayward Score, by the way. I'm going to have a couple slides on that in a moment. Just go to HaywardScore.com. Try your home. What's interesting is when you have you do your home and have your wife do your home as well and then kind of compare notes. But anyway, this Brizo meter is fascinating. A couple guys from Israel were there. And they were, I guess, the company's headquartered in Israel. And they've taken all this information from, you know, the national ambient air quality standards, the, uh, the, the daily air monitoring that goes on around the world. And um, they, they have this app that you can, you know, and I'm not an app kind of guy, but it was really easy to work with. It was like a Google map, and you can pinpoint the part of the country that you're in and it will tell you the air quality. Now, this is, this is outdoor air quality, but obviously we know that that greatly affects the indoor environment. They'll tell you the air quality in the area of the country that you're in. So while I was there, they, they showed me, they zoomed in on Chicago, and we saw that the, the air quality in Chicago was not too bad that day. And then I had them do Pittsburgh, Cliff, where I know you're at right now. Uh, the air quality was a little worse in Pittsburgh, not too bad. And then I had them zoom out to Central City, PA, here in uh, the middle of the mountains, and the air quality was a little bit better. So the, the goal being that people can know what the outdoor air is, and that will help them with determining how to deal with, treat, filter, etc. the indoor air. Maybe you want to cut down on the amount of uh, outdoor air coming into your commercial building during certain, you know, uh, events that occur. Um, had someone there actually with me, Bill, uh, Bill Hayward, and uh, he, he uses it all the time. And he said when the fires were going in California, even though he was a couple hundred miles away, it affected that air quality even where he was at. So one of the more interesting uh, groups that I talked to, Cliff. Joe, what about international people? I know that uh, IQA has, you know, sent people, for, you know, both staff and officers, you know, have visited foreign countries and, and started chapters. Any update on that? Yeah, there was a really a larger contingent of people from outside of the United States than I recall seeing at an IAQA conference. And another thing I want to mention, there was, we're getting a little more diversity on the board. There's two women now, Cliff, so that's a good thing. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, we're slowly trying to get younger people and, and women and minorities involved in the association. And I think they're making some progress. So I saw a pretty good contingency of people coming from around the world, some Australians there, some, some people from China. At the expo, it's just, the, the expo is very international. Um, you've got companies from all over the world. Amen. But uh, we, I wanna go back to another presentation. I mentioned Hayward Score, and you can see we've got up on, so the Hayward, uh, Carl Grimes, who's been a regular guest and contributor to the show, did a presentation and it was information that they have gathered now that they've had. I think at the time they gathered this information, they had 5,000 people that had done their Hayward score. Um, there's now more than 9,000, I believe, and Carl will correct me if I have those numbers wrong. But what I found interesting, and this slide that we have up right now, they ask each of those people if they have any 
you know, complaints that they think may be related to their indoor environment. And you can see um, sinus congestion in almost half the people is, a, is a, a concern, at least, in their indoor environment. Then as you go down the list, the only thing that was actually higher was cough, sneeze, which I thought was a little unusual. I, wasn't, I didn't expect that. I really didn't expect sinus congestion to be, you know, 45%. So you can see the list of the types of symptoms people have when they're in their homes. And I, I thought this was very interesting, Cliff. Joe, what's the difference between headaches one and headaches two? That's a good question. I, I am not sure if that's just one person or two people that have headaches in the home, but that's a good question. We'll have to get that uh, answered by Carl. I want to get him on the show to go over some of the information they're getting. For those of you that aren't familiar with Hayward Score, it's uh, a way of Carl and uh, Bill Hayward have been working on this for, I want to say four years now, Cliff. It's at least three. And it's an algorithm where you go to their site and you answer questions about your home. And then you also, there's a section where you can answer questions about any kind of health-related uh, or symptoms, I guess, that, that um, you can mark off as well. And they're gathering all that information and, and then doing things like putting together this data so that they can better determine, you know, what types of homes seem to lead to more problems. So they'll, they'll ask you, do you have a basement? Do you have a crawl space? Do you have a, a slab? Um, they, they separate it by geographical region. They, uh, they really are gathering a lot of data that's going to help us. And I, I'm, I'm encouraging them for investigators, and I think this is something we all need to work on. We've got to find a way to aggregate the data on the type of home, the geography, the age of the home, and then for us doing IEQ investigations, what should I be focusing on as the biggest source or most common source for problems in that type of home. I'll take an example. I've got a, a home right now I'm working on in the uh, Seven Springs area here of, of Pittsburgh, and it's a mountain home. It's a very nice home, very wealthy people, but, uh, you know, they've got a basement. Uh, it's a 25-year-old basement, actually almost 30 years old, and I just talked to my buddy about this last night, and uh, apparently the, the guy that put in the French drain in that in that plan, and these are very, again, very wealthy places, they had a way of actually um, cleaning out the drain system on the home, and it had never been cleaned out. So 25 years later, when he went over to inspect it, it was clogged. And the reason we were there in the first place was they had mold issues. A home inspector came in, took a bunch of air samples in the home, said there's a problem, but didn't tell us what the problem was. So my buddy Danny, Danny Special Forces Hunt, by the way, I want to wish him, uh, hope he gets well soon. Unfortunately, our buddy broke his leg in three places two days ago, Cliff. But, How'd he uh, do that? Uh, Danny's a part-time farmer, and he caught his shirt on a gear shift on a tractor, and when he got off the tractor, it twisted him funny. He landed on his leg and broke it in three places. Um, doctors said that's a very common thing, and I want to. I'm bringing this up for a reason. The doctor said normally the way this happens is someone gets off a ladder, um, or they jump off the back of a pickup truck. So again, we've got to always be thinking about what we're, what we're doing out there when we're investigating 
healthy home, you know, when we're looking at homes for indoor air quality complaints, just a, a two or three foot drop on, off of a ladder or off the back of a truck can end up with uh, very serious consequences. Let's go so, to you one, know, one, one, one thing, you know, while you're on it about the roots, uh, just, just a quick comment on that. There's a chemical called copper sulfate, and it's excellent for dealing with roots that, you know, that get into the system. And, mm. you know, what it does, it kills them and it, you know, prevents them from growing again. And it's really a good thing, you know, to anyone that has uh, issues with, with roots getting into their system. You can get it at Home Depot. You can order it online. It works quite well. And you know, environmentally, uh, it's pretty sound uh, product. It's used agriculturally. Uh, people even eat it in certain situations. Hmm. So, Interesting. Uh, copper sulfate. I also had uh, put up this number of, of symptoms histogram. This is, again, from uh, from Carl Grimes' presentation on the uh, data they've been collecting from the Hayward score. And what we're seeing here is um, on the left, we've got the, the percentage of the people that had the symptom. And let's see, we've got uh, how many symptoms they had on the bottom. And you can see there's a, a pretty, you know, about 10% of people had some kind of symptom. And then as, as we go along, you can see uh, as you, you get into the middle there, four, five, six, seven symptoms, you know, six to 7% of the people had those many, that many symptoms. And, and, and some had as many as 23 symptoms. So uh, very interesting data that they're collecting here. I hope I'm presenting it right. Carl will let me know if I'm not and I'll fix it. But anyway, I, I encourage people, if you get a chance to, uh, Check in with us again when we have Carl on. He's going to do a little more detail on this. All right. So that's kind of a, a quick wrap-up. Oh, by the way, um, Tom Grillo, Particles Plus, had a very well-attended presentation and uh, did a nice job on going over how to use particle counters. Another presentation I heard a lot about was uh, Joe Medosh, who um, Joe uh, was at our conference and, and spoke for us at the Healthy Building Summit did a presentation on indoor air quality and building science and um, very well received. Uh, there was also a town hall type event where, where they talked about the uh, aftermath of hurricane, um, all the hurricanes. So they had Sam Bergman, who is now in Orlando, Florida, John Lapoterre. They talked about the after effects of the hurricane there. Michael Bowden and Travis West talked about the issues that had occurred in uh, in Texas, um, John indicated there's a, a lot of issues with insurance companies and miscategorization of the, uh, uh, of the water damage in Florida. So immediately saying that because the, the, it was wind-driven rain or it came from outside that an entire building is now Category 3 water damage and that... Uh, you know, remediation companies were um, using that to be able to rip out all the materials that, you know, may not have needed to be ripped out, Cliff. And we'll be talking more about that on a future show, too. Absolutely, because I think we're going to be talking uh, with both Ralph Moon and uh, Mike Bowden about it. So, yeah, we've got to do uh, our more final. More on the investigative and, and more on the legal, for sure. Yep, Absolutely. All right, so that's that's a quick roundup of the IAQA conference. Uh, they they did a nice job as always, and uh, it was I'll say one other thing. There were more different 
new speakers this year that I wasn't familiar with, and I, I think that's a good thing. Um, again, uh, still a lot on, on mold, but uh, there were presentations on things other than that as well. Um, I had uh, very, I, I wish I could have gotten more. And by the way, I want to say hi to Bob Crow out there. Bob Crow from Healthy Indoors Magazine was there and uh, talked to him. And uh, we're going to do some more with Bob in the future. All right, so here's the next one. This was fascinating. Um, Sloan, uh, Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, I think it is, had a uh, workshop, Research to Practice. And this was in Orlando. About 35 researchers and practitioners got together for two days. And uh, we had also not just researchers and practitioners, but also government agencies were represented as well. So you had Laura Kolb from EPA, Peter Ashley from HUD, uh, Ginger Chu from CDC. And, and the uh, let's go to the next slide, John. I think, yeah, here was the agenda. So... Reducing mold-associated health and financial burden in indoor environments. What is normal fungal ecology? You could spend forever talking about that one. That was a huge topic. Uh, we also talked about new tools for microbial assessment, some of the DNA-based tools. There was a session on MVOCs and a little bit on mold remediation and, and, and rapid assessment tools. So this wasn't so much what we have now, although it, it was to some degree what we have now. In other words, the, the practitioners, people like Bill Southern, uh, Lou Harriman, they had Rachel Adams. Um, now, there were two Rachel Adams. We'll get that straight. One is the IICRC instructor and uh, consultant. The other is uh, the researcher, Rachel Adams. So we'll get that straight right up front. But they, they had the presentations from the practitioners to help inform the researchers about what our concerns are, what our needs are. Uh, John Lapoter was there. He presented. Uh, Lydia was there as well. Launchy Weeks was there. Uh, she spoke from the practitioner perspective. And then we had the researchers speak. And then at the end of each session, we got together in groups and talked about, okay, um, let's look at this list of questions and let's see where we go from here. And that was the whole idea is how do we continue this collaboration between researchers and practitioners so that practitioners have what they need to help people with assessment and remediation of the indoor environment. In this case, we're talking primarily microbial assessment. So let's flip to the next one. Here were the questions that they were trying to answer. There were three sets of questions. The first set, can normal fungal ecology of a building be described for different geographies, climates, and for buildings surrounded by different land uses? And does it need to be? Um, the second was, do we know the ecology of fungi growing on damp building materials well enough to determine if a building is impacted by fungal growth due to dampness? And how do these fungi differ from fungi that are part of the natural ecology? And third, do practitioners even care? If so, what are the research practitioner needs for fungal ecology? So it started off with, um, I'm going to go, let's go to the presentation. All right, the, the second set were these questions. We'll come back to those in a minute. 
the third set were these questions. I want to come back to those, but first I want to go to the next. Keep going, keep going, keep going. There. Um, the speakers, uh, we started out with a presentation. I want to congratulate uh, Richard Shaughnessy and Jordan Petchia and Paula Olsuski um, from Sloan. Excellent job organizing the event, uh, bringing the right people to the table, and um, getting the questions together that I think are, are important questions that we need to answer. So they started with a brief introduction. We can skip over that, John. And then they had Mark Mendel speak. Uh, Dr. Mendel, who's been on our show uh, in the past, I think maybe twice now, he gave a little perspective on uh, his perspective on research to practice. Okay, I got a couple minutes before halftime. Let's go to the next slide. So the thing, the first thing he did that I think is really important and all of us need to do is to separate the level of inspection. Are we just looking at building condition or are we doing some kind of assessment of occupant health? Now, the practitioners kind of said, no, well, wait a minute. You know, we have to walk into the situation as is and commonly, these things are both a concern, but uh, I think we, we do sometimes need to keep in mind, at least when we're developing uh, protocols or developing uh, testing assessment uh, protocols or remediation protocols, you know, what are we doing? Are we, are we trying to assess the condition of the building or are we looking at the occupant health? And, and oftentimes, the practitioners get thrown in the middle of you know, having to address both. The ways to assess mold are, are, you know, pretty simple. See or smell it, um, measured building moisture, or measured microorganisms. So these are the kind of things that Mark Mendel put as a background um, so that everybody was on the same page. And then he, he gave us a real simple way of kind of uh, understanding the researchers when they say, okay, there's an odds ratio. You know, they do this research, they put together the statistics, then they... Uh, tell us what their findings are, and a part of their findings may be this odds ratios. And he just said, look, greater than one, just consider that increased risk. One, no change in risk. Uh, less than one, decreased risk. And the further it is away from those, the, the more uh, powerful the, the data is. Let's go to the next one, John. Uh, so again, we were talking about these three questions. Can normal fungal ecology be described? Do we know the ecology of fungi growing on damp building materials? And, and do practitioners care? I think they got the message that yes, practitioners care. I don't think many of the researchers realize that when we follow the IICRC S520, there's three conditions. You know, you got your condition one, condition two, condition three, normal fungal ecology, settled spores, and actual growth. So that they found we do care about that because many people are trying to determine what's normal. Go to the next one, John. Then we had some practitioner perspective from two guys I have a great deal of respect for and have both been um, both been on the show in the past. Lou Harriman, who I mentioned, got his IAQA Hall of Fame induction this year, and James Scott, who is a um, he's kind of a a dual purpose guy. He not only does research, but he owns a laboratory, a microbiology laboratory, where people bring in the everyday spore traps, tape lifts, cultures, etc. So James kind of spoke a little from both perspectives, but in this first section, he was talking from the practitioner's perspective. So 
Lou Harriman came on. Let's go uh, touch on that. Um, the driver of sampling is the building's condition, obviously, and, and why people sample. This actually was from James Scott. In his experience getting thousands of samples in the lab, it's either because they're trying to it's it's they're trying to have the sampling assist them with the assessment process for post remediation verification or for some kind of, of surveillance of a building. So building owners or even uh, consultants working for building owners will do some periodic monitoring or periodic surveillance. Then after the discussion about that and the presentations on those first questions, we got the perspective from the federal agencies. And uh, Laura Kolb from EPA and Peter Ashley from HUD both spoke. That's Peter Ashley right there. Go to the next one. The EPA perspective from Laura was that, you know, their goal is to, re and she's with the Indoor Environments uh, Group, which is you know, a little different than the rest of the EPA. They're more focused on outdoors, but their focus is on reducing mold health effects and the financial burden in buildings. And one of the stats she gave that I, I wrote down and I thought was really interesting, the number one EPA inquiry 20 years ago and still today is mold. When they get inquiries to their website, and they get calls as well. They have a hotline where people can call in. They answer questions. Invariably, the most common questions um, are mold-related. So I thought that was hey, interesting. Hey, hey, John, you know, what's interesting is it's a 20-year phenomenon. You know, the EPA goes back to around 1972. And, you know, at that time, everyone was worried about DDP. So I think that oftentimes what's in the news has a tendency to change. Absolutely. And, and radon was a big issue for years. Of course, asbestos through the um, 80s, the 90s, that was a huge issue. Then in the 90s, lead paint became a big, big issue for EPA. So, um, But the last 20 years, it seems like the biggest questions revolve around mold and um, issues related to mold and dampness, as, as the researchers would say. Let's get to the Peter Ashley slide, and then we're going to take a break for halftime. So the HUD perspective, HUD's big on the Healthy Homes program, and I, I encourage you, if you're not familiar with that program, the Essentials of Healthy Housing, it was developed by the National Center for Healthy Housing, the Seven Essentials, uh, I'll probably get six as I normally do, keep it dry, keep it pest-free. Uh, keep it contaminant-free, keep it safe, uh, keep it maintained, keep it clean. I got six as usual. I left one out. But you'd look for those seven essentials. HUD has been focused on those. Uh, he also talked about the uniform physical condition uh, standard that HUD uses and that um, they're working on that to make sure that it, it – um, has a little more focus on dampness and, and mold-related issues. I don't think right now it does, although their real estate assessment they do for Section 8 does have a more detailed um, look at moisture and mold. And they're, they're doing a pilot right now incorporating moisture meters and infrared cameras with the people doing those assessments. So that should be interesting. As time goes on, we'll learn more about that, and hopefully we'll have Peter back on the show again. All right, so what, go to the next one real quick, John. I just want to make sure. CDC, I want to finish with this. CDC's perspective, we had Ginger Chu from CDC. Um, 
their interest started with dampness and mold, okay? Then Katrina really kicked it up. Um, and she, she spent a lot of time after Katrina looking at chronic exposure, um, looking at the differences between people who stayed in their homes and those who were able to leave during the remediation. And um, there was a new effort out, and she told me it's on the website. I haven't had a chance to go look at it yet, but there's a CDC recommendations to clinicians. And um, I think that's going to be an interesting document. We haven't talked about it yet, Cliff, but that's one I think we're going to need to uh, have a show on maybe. And the last key point I took away from her discussion was they're taking more of an in interest in infectious fungi, um, which... I hear more and more about, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. One of the later presenters was talking about hospital-acquired infections and biofilm. So right now, I think we're going to take a break, thank our sponsors. We'll be back in 90 seconds uh, with the, the rest of the show. IAQ Radio would like to thank our association sponsors. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them, wolfsense.com. IAQ marquee sponsors are. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. That's J-O-N-D-O-N.com. Healthy Indoor Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions are available at iaq.net. Particles Plus, engineers and manufacturers feature rich particle counters, air quality monitoring, instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Particlesplus.com. Count on us. Okay, so we're back for the second half. Uh, John, I want to go to the next slide, if you would, here. Um, so questions 1A, 1B, and 1C uh, from the research perspective. Need to better understand the association between the fungal species and water damage in buildings. I, I think, um, okay, we're continuing that discussion of those questions, 1A, 1B, and 1C. And I think this is something that the researchers are, are, are focusing on. Now, what are the fungal species that affect water damaged buildings? And, and we've got to keep in mind that as practitioners, we're used to, you know, tape lifts, spore traps, some culture samples, some swabs. Uh, then we've got the PCR-related technology, which is a DNA-based technology, but um, most of what we're doing with, with PCR is you know, pretty limited because it only, you only have the primers for a certain number of um, taxa or species of fungi. These folks are looking at big, big numbers of um, data on many, many different types of fungi. So they're, they're using this next generation sequencing and they're getting, you know, thousands and thousands of types of fungi. And, and, and so it's giving them a kind of new perspective on the indoor environment. There's just so much there we didn't know about before, and, and we're here looking at, you know, 
20 or so species on a spore trap or on a, on a culture, maybe 30 or 40 species of, or not even species on the, on the spore traps genera. Uh, and on the, on the, on the cultures, maybe we get up to 30 or 40, you know, I think there's 36, maybe, maybe there's a hundred now primers for the, the PCR related type study. So how do you bridge that gap? Um, and this presentation was done by, uh, let's see, I think this was Tina Rapone in here. She was talking about how Finland has some guidelines based on culture samples for what is normal. But in general, we just don't know what is normal. Uh, we don't know what the normal fungal ecology is. And then it depends on what level you're looking at. You know, are you looking at what we get on, um, you know, a basic spore trap? type result or a culturable type result or are you looking at the you know next generation sequencing these guys are doing where they're getting thousands and thousands of different types of organisms so we've got to kind of come together on on what we're going to use to help us determine what is normal what's that normal fungal ecology um, so the other thing they're looking at and they, i think they've got a research project on this now is the what type of water damage fungi and and how they differ on different building products so uh, they're looking at you know um, wood versus drywall versus uh, mdfs versus any you know osb versus plywood etc and i think the next step on this also is the the chemistry that's involved with that because sloan's now funding a a big effort on the chemistry of the indoor environment well part of that chemistry is things that off-gas from the microbial world. So it's, it's a really interesting topic, but how we're going to bridge the gap is, is what they were trying to talk about here. Let's go to the next one. So then we got this practitioner's perspective, and the asterisk is uh, Rachel Adams with an asterisk is the IICRC representative. Rachel Adams from the UC Berkeley has no asterisk. So uh, let's go to the next one. Terry Brennan, Jason Dobranek, and uh, Rachel Adams were talking about and what they were trying to do is get the researchers to be on the same page with practitioners with respect to what, what we do, how we do it, and uh, what is normal fungal ecology, where that came from. Rachel did a presentation on what is condition one, two, and three per the IICRC S520. I'm sure many of them weren't that familiar with it. Um, they went over things like Jason Dobranek from EMSL, Dr. Dobranek talked about the D7391. And this is the standard that many of the labs follow reporting on spore traps and the 12 categories of mold required to be reported. So we're talking about 12 categories of mold required to be reported when they're looking at thousands and thousands of, of sequences of data from their, uh, you know, from, from their DNA-based sampling and analysis. So it's, it's really a, a, a kind of tough bridge that we're going to have to try and build between these two groups. Um, then there was a little discussion of how we've used either indoor-outdoor comparisons. There was the Spearman rank, the Friedman G-square, things I don't think we're seeing a lot of it right now. Let's go to the next one. So the next questions, all right, let's go, let me go back here, John. I want to go back to the questions part one. All right, so these are the questions from part one. And um, John's going to have to reset that. So can, I'm just going to kind of summarize for listeners what, 
what I got out of it. I mean, you know, others are going to have a different opinion on how how it went and what the, the answers were. So can the normal fungal ecology of a building be described for different geographies, climates? No. I mean, right now, no. Um, that's my, my takeaway from this. And frankly, I think some of our practitioners have as good of an idea as anyone about what normal fungal ecology is. I think we've got to get some of these researchers together with some of the labs that have been looking at mountains of data over the years, and they have some idea of what normal fungal ecology is, and um, they can tell you the difference between geographies. Now, at that level we look at, maybe not at that thousands and thousands of organisms level, but we have some idea, and that's, that's one of the things that they're going to work towards bridging. Do we know the ecology of fungi growing on damp building materials well enough to determine if a building is impacted by fungal growth due to dampness? Well, sure, uh, to some degree and, and at a certain level, but you know, at the next level that these folks are looking at, some of these researchers, I'm not so sure that's something they're looking at. And how do these differ from fungi that are part of the natural ecology? I guess one of the main things they, you know, we hear over and over is it all came from outside at some point. So um, now, is the indoor microbiome different from the outdoor? Absolutely. Um, and that's, on, again, continue, they're continuing to do research on that. Now, the other thing is, do practitioners even care? If so, what are the research practitioner needs with respect to fungal ecology, yeah, absolutely, practitioners care. I think there was, uh, I think the researchers found that, and uh, I think they, they know now that we care about that, and I think we're going to see more work together to try and uh, work together to answer some of these questions. Um, and if hey, so, Joe, yes. What are the differences um, in Finland, for instance? in the United States in terms of building materials? Do they use OSB? Do they use drywall? Very interesting. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Finland later, but while, while we're on that question, there was a great presentation on Finland and, and some of the work they're doing in Finland. And um, Max, I can't remember his last name at the moment. We'll see it in a moment. But he was talking about how most of the fungal most of the issues they have are not visible. So the type of building materials, they use more, you know, concrete, um, stone, uh, more, you know, plasters that, uh, you know, and again, it's a cold climate, so, you, you know, you don't have that hot, humid environment that we have in many parts of the U.S. or even the mixed humid. Um, and he was saying most of their mold issues are hidden. You know, they grow under things or or within layers of, of wall uh, systems or under uh, flooring systems, etc. So that was the big difference I noticed, Cliff. Okay. And would most of the houses suck over there or do they use positive well, pressurization? Well, good point. Uh, good question. They, they have more HRVs, heat recovery ventilation, and uh, I think they're more focused, from what I could gather from, from talking to him, I think they're more focused on bringing in outdoor air and keeping that uh, pressure at least somewhat neutral. Okay. So that was one of the things we talked about because, you know, they have pretty good data on what works in Finland, but, uh, you know, when we, 
when we look at the wide variety of geographies around the world and in the United States, you know, what works there may not work as well in other parts of the world. And I'm going to have him on the show for us, Cliff. I think he was a fascinating speaker. He did a great job. Um, all right. So let's flip through here. And I want to get to the next questions. Here we go. Oh, what happened there, John? There we go. So, two, new tools for microbial assessment. How can the DNA-based tools be used to indicate a need for remediation or to notify if a building has been cleared? Um, talking about meeting standards, there was a section on MVOC measurements, how they can be used to indicate the need for remediation or to indicate clearance. Still a lot of work to be done there. And how can and should building sensors be incorporated into inspection and restoration practice? And what applied research is required to advance these tools? That was a great uh, topic of discussion. So these were, these were very interesting segments. I'm going to kind of have to flip through this pretty quick. There, Martin Tobel. Um, he was the gent gentleman from Finland talking about the DNA-based tools. I love this quote, and I, I didn't quite get it all, but I'll get it for the blog. All happy families resemble each other, but each unhappy family is unique. That was a Tolstoy quote. And then he put a quote up from his professor, and his professor kind of took the tact of all healthy homes resemble each other, but each unhappy home is unique. And I thought that was an interesting couple of quotes he put up there and uh, kind of brought home some of you know the, the discussion that, he, that we were having and that he wanted to talk about. Um, they did a moldy homes and health study and talked a little bit about the, rit the richness. Okay, so after remediation, the richness of bacteria and fungi was reduced in the remediated homes, which kind of makes sense. Now, how that, what that means in the big picture, they're, they're still looking at, you know. Um, but they talked a lot about uh, comparing non-remediated and remediated homes. And again, I want to get uh, Dr. Dr. Tobble on the show to go into that in a little more detail. But he, he kind of talked to us about how things were over in in Finland. And uh, then we talked about James Scott was Joe, back. Joe, before you go on, back to Martin Tobble, didn't his findings contradict what the findings were in the Colorado studies? That... You know, those houses that they studied that were remediated, if right. I'm not mistaken, they were all higher afterwards. I don't know if the um, richness of the bacteria and fungi were. I, I don't recall. That's a good question, Cliff. It's something we're going to have to ask. Okay. We'll have to come back to that. That was a, there was so much happening all at once here. It was a great, uh, you know, and, and there's a, and the key was, they want to follow up on this. They want to continue this conversation. And I'm, you know, you, you know, you and I, we have the Research to Practice Conference, you know, Healthy Building Summit, October 24 to 27, by the way, this year. We'll be back at Seven Springs, and I'm going to have some of these researchers there, and we're going to have practitioners there just like we have in the past, and I'm hoping we can somehow tie it in with what uh, Rich Shaughnessy and Jordan Petya and the Sloan people are doing because – um, this is what we need to do. I mean, and, and Richard Shaughnessy is just passionate about this. It was really great to see that passion in, in the, you know, in the researchers to reach out to the practitioners. All right. So James Scott talked a little bit about 
DNA-based tools, um, and, and he kind of used it from a passion, from a practitioner's perspective. Again, he does both research and practice, but he's got the lab. And what practice has learned about sampling for mold in buildings, this was kind of him telling the the researchers, is that that's, in his opinion, standard air and dust sampling is useless for exposure assessment, which I, I think that's pretty well uh, documented, then I think most people would agree. Um, but he also felt it was rarely helpful in assessment or after remediation. And I just, we didn't get a chance to ask him more detail on that. I want to do that on a future show. I think some practitioners would argue with that, um, that, that some of these standard air and dust sampling methods are helpful in, in our assessment of both you know, whether a building has issues, and then again, whether the remediation was complete. So I, I look forward to a further discussion with uh, James Scott on that. But I thought the big thing that he mentioned that was fascinating, he was watching a presentation by Terry Brennan. And I don't know if you remember Cliff, but at, at our Healthy Building Summit, Terry was our uh, keynote two years right. ago. And he had slides of this little microscope he uses and um, it's just a it's little a $300 microscope. Yeah, $300 microscope. I think he gets like 100x on it. So it doesn't, you know, get you to the level where you can look at certain things, but it, it sure does help. And he had a photograph up there of a, a mite, and this mite was in heaven. You know, this mite was on a book, I want to say. And it was just, you know, chewing up the mold and a happy kind of mite and reproducing and it was it was in heaven and um, that led James to to note that there are 100,000 types of mites and we only know about the allergens from a dozen or so so you know the dampness and damp indoor environments you know people have focused on and that was a presentation by the way at IAQA um, I forget the, the exact title of it, but they had uh, Larry Schwartz and Carl Grimes and one other gent. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the name right now, but they were talking about, you know, what should we be looking at? Is it, is it mold? Is it bacteria? Is it mycotoxins? Is it what, what's causing the health issues? Bottom line is we don't know. Um, at least the research does not indicate what, specific component of dampness is causing these health issues that people have. And I think James Scott kind of, like, it was like a light bulb went on when he saw that photo of that mite eating up that mold on that book that, uh, that, that Terry was showing. He was like, you know, this is such a huge issue. The, the, what, what, that micro that that tiny biome microbiome is all about you know how many different kinds of mites are there that we haven't even we don't know anything about yet we don't know what kind of allergens they produce and so i thought that was a fascinating discussion it also made me think about jeff may you know the iaqa hall of famer now jeff may uh several times been on the show he's always been very interested in mites and what they do we we learn a lot about you know, dust mites, uh, we know a good bit about dust mites, and they're, they're a huge problem for people in the country. And I'm, I'm personally, I think those sinus congestion people that Carl Grimes found, 
the 48% or so of the people in homes that have sinus congestion, my theory on that is many, many of them are reacting to dust mites. How many other types of these 100,000 mites do we find in the indoor environment? And why do we know so little about them? Uh, Sounds like those people aren't watching that my pillow commercial, Jim. <laughs> Could be, Cliff. Uh, the last point James Scott made was that the uh, qPCR methods, so you know, those are uh, a DNA based type of method, but he says they're showing some promise in predicting health outcomes. And I asked James, I said, James, five years ago you were on the show. And you told us that in five years or so, we're going to be able to plug a uh, you know, USB stick type instrument into our computer, and we're going to be able to put some dust on that, and we're going to see thousands and thousands of sample results for a low price. And uh, he said, yeah, I did, and actually we're, we're pretty close to that right now. Some of these... And, you know, next-gen sequencing kind of uh, analyses aren't as expensive as you think. The problem is we don't know what to do with the data. Uh, that's, that's a huge issue. You get all this data, and you just don't know what to do with it. Um, what they've been able to do is put together some kind of baseline, at least, and I think that's kind of the, the big thing that the Sloan Microbiome Project did was help us get some kind of baseline. I don't know if you remember, Cliff, they had uh, – uh, Brent Stevens, I think it was, that did the, he did the show with us on the hospital study they did where they did, you know, thousands and thousands of samples of uh, a hospital. In of Chicago. A, yeah, in Chicago. He was there, too, and did a little presentation. In fact, hopefully I'll get to that here, but uh, we're running low on time. The next speaker, Drew Gentner, was from Yale, and he talked about VOCs and advances in monitoring that may be useful in mold remediation and other applications. He really, the, the, primes, the primary speaker wasn't able to make it, and then Drew, uh, Dr. Gentner came in and did a presentation. What he primarily did was give them a, a primer on VOCs and the technology being used to uh, look at VOCs um, and just kind of throw the topic out there. There wasn't a great deal of, of um, detail that I can give listeners right now. But it, it, it put the topic out there, and then I, I talked to Mark Mandel about it a little bit, Dr. Mandel, and I mentioned that Alice D'Elia at PRISM, uh, Dr. D'Elia, who's also been uh, a speaker at our conference and, and talked to us on the show here, has a real nice uh, library and, and has been looking very closely at MVOCs, microbial VOCs, and then I ran into her at the IAQA conference and and I, again, I think it's this situation where the practitioners, the laboratories, have a lot of data that the researchers haven't really had access to, and that if we can find a way to get those two together, they may start to be able to help us with the big question. One of the big questions was, how do we find hidden mold? You know, every practitioner's had to deal with this. Every home inspector's had to deal with this. Every, every indoor air quality professional, every mold remediation professional, the, the HVAC cleaning guys, everybody has that same question. How do you find the hidden dampness, the hidden mold? Now, I know some people, I think of John Lapoterre and his tremendous background in building science. He can figure it out a lot of times without 
any kind of sampling, but not everybody has that background. Not everybody can look at a building and say, hey, you know, based on my experience, there's going to be dampness here, and I cut into that wall right there, and I'm going to find um, some kind of problem because my experience shows me that's an issue. Well, we've got a lot of people out there and a lot of building owners and a lot of people working in buildings who don't have that experience, don't have that background. And if there was a, a test, if we could use something like MVOCs, which because they, they can you know pass through materials much easier than particles can, maybe they could be helpful in, in helping us with that question. And it's something that I know uh, Dr. D'Elia and Dr. Gentner and others are looking at. How can we find those hidden issues in buildings? All right. Uh, Brent Stevens. Okay, yeah, it was Brent we were talking about. Um, the built environment is a microbial wasteland. I, I thought that was an interesting uh, statement. And again, do you see it? Do you smell it? Is there moisture? And then do we need to take samples? Uh, sometimes sampling will indicate there are issues we hadn't seen. Uh, they're looking at surfaces. They're doing a project now with Sloan. And again, looking at that microbiome that grows on materials. So again, a, a type of research happening right now that hopefully we'll be able to help inform listeners. And I, I talked to them too about Ralph Moon's research, Cliff, mm-hmm. and um, how important that is. I don't think they realize we not only need to know what types of organisms grow on different types of building materials, but we need to know a lot of times how long it takes for those organisms to grow, how long that how old that loss is. That's a, a multi-million dollar, maybe billion dollar question. Is that pre-existing or was that the result of a covered event? I know it's huge with the insurance industry. Um, Dr. Moon did a great presentation for us last year at the Healthy Building Summit where he's, and actually two years ago, where he's looked at things like um, cabinets, put them in water, over a length of time and then documented how far the water goes up the material, what the, what the materials look like, the discoloration. Um, they're also, you know, this is where we were talking about, okay, now we, also what organisms are growing on that particular material. So, you know, I, I think the most important one that, that Ralph studied, Joe, probably is tax strip. True. You know, True. The tax strip and tax strip at doors. And uh, like, what's going on with that? And as well as metals, you know, he did a lot of study of metal corrosion. You know, that's the kind of thing that that the research. He's a practitioner, Ralph. You know, but he's doing that research for his clients, some of whom are insurance companies that need to know. You know, they don't want to deny your claim if it's a legitimate claim, but they also don't want to, and understandably, don't want to pay for things that are you know, 15-year maintenance issues that uh, homeowner never took care of. So uh, very important questions. All right, so the practitioners who spoke during this session were Terry Brennan, Steve Caulfield from um, Turner Building Science up in Maine, and Lanchi Weeks, who we've had all three on the show in the past. Always great to see Lanchi. Um, they were talking about a little bit about the, what we need, you know, First, Terry, as always, has very practical experience, you know, very practical advice. Find the places that are wet, were wet, or may get wet, and look there. You know, he's got some very down-to-earth um, 
advice for people. And he also talked about field microscopy. I mentioned that earlier, but we need x-ray vision. Again, we're talking about what do we need as practitioners. We need to be able to see through those walls. And then Steve Caulfield, I just love what Steve said here. 20 to 30 years ago, he sampled everything. Uh, then lately it's been this, you know, because he, he like John, has that experience, and, and many of you out there have that experience. You can walk in and say, look, this is your problem. But if you want me to prove it, that will cost you another $10,000 or $20,000 or whatever it may be. Um, it's sometimes it's, you know, very obvious. And from your experience, you can tell, but people want that proof. And if they want that proof, it's going to cost them. I will be using that line in the future, Cliff. All right. And um, one contaminant may, may not be the most important for health. So, again, you know, if we're looking at only one thing, that may not be the most important for health. And, again, how do we determine the age of mold? Uh, Lanchi talked about one of the issues that we have as practitioners that the researchers need to be aware of is, you know, there's limited money, there's limited time, and we need to know the type of sample, the number of samples, uh, what materials should be sampled, and again, what do the results mean? So, um, as always, she did. A, and I, this was really good. Bill Southern was on, and uh, him, he was on with uh, Rich Shaughnessy. This has got to be six or seven years ago now, Cliff. Bill's a CIH out of New York uh, who's done a lot of, a whole, whole lot of building investigations. And uh, recently he's been working with the New York City. I think it's the housing authority. They got sued, and they've had to do a bunch of mold inspections, and uh, he's been helping them. He's got a, a program he wrote that I, I, we got to get him back on the show, by the way, and, and it's on their, either on their phone or on a little iPad, and it's a, a, you know, a, a program that he wrote that they have to go through and document certain conditions within each of their buildings and then, you know, based on what they input, it gives them some output data on, on how to deal with that, how to fix those issues. Uh, very interesting program he's been working on. He says they're, they're having a, a lot of uh, success using that program. Basically, they're using um, thermal imaging and uh, moisture meters to find moisture issues, and then they're taking care of the moisture issues with uh, sometimes their own maintenance people, as I understand it, but other times they have to bring in a contractor. He also talked about the HVAC fiberglass nightmare and how, how we could do a better job of... Um, helping people learn how to investigate and how to remediate and how to deal with fiberglass-related issues. Uh, Bill's dealt with a lot of that over the years. And again, preventing reoccurrence was a, a common theme. Then Rachel Adams had a, a good, um, this is the IICRC Rachel Adams, talked about, you know, because at this point we're talking about improving mold remediation effectiveness and reducing the cost of mold remediation. And one of the things was, you know, if you've got to use a uh, full-face respirator, if you've got to use Tyvek clothing, if you've got to use uh, two sets of gloves, and every time people come in and out of the containment, they've got to change these things, it adds to the costs of remediation. And is that really necessary? Um, do we really have any information on what the health effects are for those providing these kind of services? I thought it was a good question uh, that came out of the discussion. I don't know that uh, Rachel was kind of just 
telling people what we do, how we do it. Um, but the, the uh, again, the big question, what is normal? Do we have to bring everything back to a clean room standard? Um, we, you know, John Lapoteer pointed out to the researchers, we, we create a, an environment that is actually not normal fungal ecology. It's beyond normal. It's cleaner than normal. How far do we have to go? Um, is there good research to show that by leaving behind um, whatever, uh, that the people are still having health-related issues? How far do we have to clean? Does the plumber coming in, tearing out the wall, throwing the, the moldy sheetrock in the bag, and fixing the, the leaky pipe, does he really cause health issues for people? Is there data to show that? Or um, is that good enough? You know, fix the moisture problem, clean up the mold, and move on with your life. Is, is that good enough? And I, I think that's a question that we're still answering. And um, obviously, until we have better research to show, okay, that is good enough or that's not good enough, then we've got to be a little more cautious about it and, and clean down to levels that may not, you know, maybe a little beyond normal. So just a question that came up. I think it's a good one. And we are running out of time here, Cliff. I'm going to flip through the rest of these real quick. If I think what I can do, uh, we're going to have a little problem uh, next week. My Danny Special Forces Hunt broke his leg, so Radio Joe's going to have to be on the road next Friday. Um, what I may be able to do, though, Cliff, is uh, we can pre-record a show or something like that and uh, come back next Friday and, and finish this up. I think what I can do, though, here is jump to another of those questions. Oop. Let's go back to the three questions at the front end and kind of wrap it up with a little overview. There we go. We talked about normal fungal ecology. Oop. Go back more. There we go. How can these DNA-based tools be used to indicate a need for remediation? They're, they're not ready. We're just not there. Um, do we need new standards? That was another thing that came up. Um, do we need, does the EPA guidance need to be updated on mold remediation in schools and commercial buildings? What about the OSHA guidance? I think in general the consensus was yes, there's there's a need for some update on these documents, and I believe EPA um, agrees, and that uh, they may well be working on that. We'll we'll see. They're certainly um, interested in in helping out any way they can in bridging this gap. The VOC measurement thing, I think we covered pretty well. Um, not there yet. I talked to Alice about it after the show uh, when I went to the IAQA conference. But they're gathering the data. You know, uh, we, we, there's just so many. Uh, her concern was there are so many other indoor environmental uh, sources for the same VOCs that we see from the fungi that, that right now it's a little tough to differentiate at, at times. Uh, but they're looking at other VOC, MVOCs, and maybe, you know, as they gather this data, they'll be able to give us a little more guidance on the use of VOCs for helping to either determine if there is an issue or indicate clearance. We're obviously doing it now by smelling them. I mean, if we smell VOCs, we know there's a problem. We've got to find it. Um, and the last one, how can building sensors be used? 
there's just going to be uh, more and more. I, I'd, I'd encourage folks, go to um, one of our sponsors, Healthy Indoors Magazine. I've been catching up on my Healthy Indoors Magazine here the last month. And uh, Nate Adams, who's been on the show, did a nice article in, uh, I think it was the last edition, maybe December, on the different low-cost sensors that are available today. Um, now, these aren't as accurate as the tools we use in the field, but they can give you a ballpark idea of what's going, in, going on in the indoor environment. And I, I, I'm certain over time the researchers and the, the manufacturers are going to come up with sensors that are going to be built into our buildings that are going to give us all kinds of data that will help us with uh, determining how to fix these buildings. And third, what applied research is needed to advance prevention or remediation effectiveness of mold in buildings? I think we're just touching the, the surface on that one. We've got a long way to go. And again, we've got to coordinate between the researchers and the practitioners to help us figure that out. What innovations are needed to reduce the cost of effective moisture mold remediation? Cliff, I got to give you the props on the Pittsburgh Protocol. That's one I think that's been underlooked. I'm glad to see, and I mentioned to uh, Ginger Chu, I was, I was thrilled that FEMA put it into their document. Um, they didn't call it the Pittsburgh Protocol, but they did incorporate uh, foaming and power washing into the cleanup after floods. Um, the Hurricane Sandy fact sheet, uh, I think that is one way we can help reduce the cost, and there are others that we're exploring. And do we need additional improved guidelines or standards? Sure. Uh, you can never, you know, it doesn't hurt to improve them. I think some of the practitioners felt there are some pretty good standards in place now, like the ASTM standards for doing indoor environmental quality investigations. They've got a standard for doing mold, our microbial investigations. Um, I think right now those are underutilized in our industry, especially by those that, you know, go to the one, two, they um, online, you're now a mold inspector certified to uh, do whatever you want in a building. Um, those folks are not using those standards. I think, and unfortunately, many in the industry are not using those standards and, and, and should be. So that's something I think in part we need to do a better job of getting the word out that they exist and that they should be being used. Uh, but there are going to be some new standards. And by the way, that was one of the topics at the IAQA conference. Um, still not quite there with their mold in schools inspection standard. It went out for public review, I think, twice now. They've gathered all the comments. They've sent back uh, their their responses to the comments. But there's still a good bit of controversy over that one. In fact, there was a... Uh, as I understand it, I wasn't there, but um, some fairly, I don't want to say heated, but uh, contentious meetings on that topic. Um, I think some of the ASHRAE folks have a little problem with the way that went. But anyway, Cliff, um, I want to just thank you and thank listeners for hanging in there with us this week. And uh, we're trying out this new process. I think it's going to work. Uh, it's going to take us a little time. John, you got to have faith. Great you bounced it out, buddy. I was a little worried we'd be, we'd be able to pull this off, but uh, we'll see how the we'll see how the recording comes out. And Bob Crow, if you're listening, yeah, we'll need your help down the road, buddy. Let's talk, Cliff. Anything you'd like to add as a final comment? 
Nope. Nope. Thanks. Nope. We're good. Right. Well, I want to thank everyone. Thank my partner, the Z-Man, my co-host, the John. You got to have faith. Our engineer at the controls. Of course, our growing our, our sponsors, and of course, our growing group of loyal listeners will be back some way, shape, or form next Friday for the next episode of IAQ Radio. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. <laughs>